Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Movies and Meal, a podcast where we talk about movies and other things while we eat. I'm your co-host Ben, and as always, I'm joined by Keith hey. and Brad. What's up? we got a big lineup here. We've got four movies to review. What do we got? we got Chicken Run 2. Mm-hmm. We have a movie that Keith's going to say, because I can never remember what the title is. Fry Bed Face and Me. Okay. I'm going to review Self-Reliance, a movie from Jake Johnson, starring him. And Anna Kendrick, and then we're going to close out with The Book of Clarence, a new movie with Lakeith Stanfield? Oh, yeah. And among other people. A very stacked cast with director Jameis Sengel. Okay. All right, so, but, you know, unfortunately, we're going to, we're just going to open on a, on a sad note. Every year, we cross over with our friends at the What You Should Read podcast. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's always a treat. You know, we talk about uh, Christmas movies or Christmas TV shows that are based on books or whatnot. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we got the news, uh, one of the hosts, Julia, she, you know, she passed away, and, um, you know, we just want to send our, our condolences. Julia, I guess, actually, before even the What You Should Read podcast, uh, because she, when we were doing, like, our summer movies, not summer movies, when we were doing, like, our... COVID movies. Yeah, like, like COVID movies, movies from France, um, you know, she came on and recorded an episode about an American president, um, that movie with... Michael Douglas and Annette Benning, and you know we we've gotten to know her a little bit through the podcast, and um, you know our like I said, uh, our hearts go out to um, you know Kelly and Rachel, the other co-hosts. Think about you guys, really. I mean, um, yeah, it's sad. I talked to Kelly, and she's pretty sure that the last thing that Julie recorded was with us. Yeah, I'm very sad. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, hearts go out to them. Yeah, yeah. It was all. It's always fun having uh, having the What You Should Read crew join us, and Julie always uh, always brought brought a lot of energy and joy to it. Such a sad thing. You know, we're going to we're gonna transition out of that the best we can, and we'll talk about the Golden Globes. Brad's just going to go over kind of the winners. For those who don't know, the Golden Globes, they, they do it a little differently than most other awards shows. They break up most of the big categories with drama and musical or comedy. 2024 Golden Globe Award winners for Best Picture in Drama was Oppenheimer. For musical or comedy, it was Poor Things. For Best Actor, for uh, Drama, it's uh, Killian Murphy for in Oppenheimer. And for Musical Comedy, Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers. For Best Actress in Drama, it was Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon. And for Musical or Comedy, it was Emma Stone in Poor Things. For Supporting Actor, the uh, this one's not split, this is combined. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, uh, the winner was Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer. And for... Best Supporting Actress, it was uh, Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. And for Best Director, it was uh, Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer. It's not a one-to-one Golden Globe Oscar winners, but I think it just kind of confirms what we knew, I think going into the summer anyway, is that Oppenheimer seems to be the movie to beat. Um, And Gillian Murphy seems to be uh, a high contender as for his Best Actor. As well as uh, Robert Downey Jr., who just you know gave a really great performance in that movie as well. But it also was it's kind of telling like Barbie didn't really win anything. One of my favorite movies, Past Lives, didn't really win anything. Keith, what, you've seen a lot of these movies too, so what do you think? Yeah, I'm with you. It looks like you're right. There were some snubs, but that you know that always happens. Um, I love the holdovers. I'm very happy that um, Paul Giamatti's here in recognition, and it probably does come down to a heavyweight bout, like Ben said, uh, ben said it before we started to draw a broadcast between Killian Murphy and um, Paul Giamatti. I'm down with that. And I loved Devon Joy Randolph, so that was great. Uh, Lily Gladstone. It was mostly good wars all around. And just a quick word about TV. I saw Succession on its way out, swept every category, so I was very happy about that. 
Also, just as a note, um, your 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 boy uh, Miyazaki, the boy in the harem, mm-hmm. won for animated. So it's a uh, Miyazaki's to lose. It looks like. So. Well, the animated Oscar race is going to be really fun. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because because you got you got a dog in the race, Keith, with the the boy in the harem. I got a dog in the race for uh, Spider Man across the Spider Verse. So um, it's going to be interesting. Ben, who's your dog? I uh, mean. Oh, they are they are all my dogs. Yes, um, <laughs> I haven't seen Boy and Hair, but you know, I mean, it, it's going to be a pretty lively category, though. I agree with that. Um, you know, turtles might mm-hmm. turtles might uh, get in there, and you know, maybe and it's obviously just from Pixar. Yeah, yeah, there's always going to be yeah. Disney. Movie. I would like. Wouldn't be surprised if Super Mario Brothers makes it in. So that's going to be interesting. So okay. yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, Oscar nominations come out. I think January end of January, January twenty fourth to January twenty sixth. I think it's twenty fourth. I'll look yeah. at the. I've looked this up numerous times. Twenty yeah. third. Okay, so why don't we actually get into the movies first. Speaking of animated movies, uh, let's talk about Chicken Run 2. It's a sequel to a movie um, from, geez, almost 20 plus years now. Mm-hmm. But it's from the people who did Wallace and Gromit, so it's in that kind of uh, kind of claymation style. But before I let Keith talk about it, Brad, do you want to explain what this movie's about? Oh, sure thing. Summary always, courtesy of IMDb. Having pulled off an escape from Tweety's farm... Ginger has found a peaceful island sanctuary for the whole flock. But back on the mainland, the whole of chicken kind faces a new threat. And Ginger and her team decide to break in. I really have no idea why I was hesitant to see this sequel, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, on Netflix. Because I'm an army completist, and I love almost everything the studio puts out. Perhaps it was because, like so many animation fans, I hold the original in such high esteem. It's rightly considered a classic. But the good news is this new Chicken Run movie has its own distinct charms and is well worth watching. Think Babe and Babe Pig in the City, two movies that couldn't be more different, both of which I love. The makers of the new Chicken Run don't tuck as many chances as George Miller did with that Babe sequel, but almost. This one is completely different in tone, and with new faces to lead the cast, so let's dive right in. While the original was directed by Arvind Gurus Nick Lord and Andrew Park, this time out they hand the reins to animation veteran Sam Fell, who for Arvind previously had helmed one of the, its weaker offerings, flushed away. This time out, however, he got the memo and delivered something worthy of the franchise. As Chicken Run Dawn the Nugget opens, our clan is happily ensconced in their own little village full of the cracking contraptions that make Arma movies so beloved, and with big news. Ginger and Rocky are having a baby, and that's where the big casting changes start. For obvious reasons, Mel Gibson is out as Rocky, replaced with infectious charm by Zachary Levy. Ginger is now played by Fanduay Newton, who gives the role all its moxie, and best of all is the last of us standout Bella Ramsey as their offspring Molly. They're a fun family, and they quickly set an overall sunnier tone for this second Chicken Run offering. Thankfully, what survives is the wit of the original, with jokes aplenty for both kids and adults to love, and the supporting members of the flock who return, including Jane Hurricks and Imelda Staunton, as Babs and Bunty, are all gleefully in on the joke. Where Chicken Run 2 branches out from the original, as it should, is the nature of its big bad and its overall vibe. One of the many brilliant things about the original Chicken Run is it made the Tweety Farm like a Nazi camp, and had a real Grayscape vibe throughout. Rather than trying to duplicate that stroke of genius, Fallon is three writers this time out going a thankfully different direction. After Molly defies her parents and ventures out into the world, she heads for Funland Farms, under the false premise that chickens there live happily ever after. And that's where the brilliant point of Chicken Run 2, among all the jokes, sets in. While Big Chicken today often talks about how happy its chickens are, they are, of course, all suffer the same fate. And that's what Donald Nugget thrives on, letting its sunny vibe also be its most subversive. Miranda Richardson returns as Mrs. Tweedy, the chicken's arch nemesis, but this time out she's found a new foil, nutty professor Dr. Fry, voiced by Ted Lasso's Nick Mohammed. Together they conspire to create the titular Nuggets, and to tell you any more would be my own kind of crime. Just know that if you're a fan of the Chicken Run franchise and Arvin, this is a perfectly fun sequel which adds to the charms of the original while going its own direction. 
For that, I'll give Imperfectionate three stars. I've got some rotten tomatoes here, Keith. Critics and audience. You want to take a crack at them? Mm, I didn't spy on these. I think it generally is well-liked. I'll go 80% on the critics, and I'll go even higher with the fans, because if you know Armin, you like it, I'll go 85. Oh. Close on the critics. 81%, 108 mm. reviews. Audience, 74%, 500-plus mm. review. Critics consensus, courtesy of Rotten Tomatoes. Chicken Run Don the Nugget offers more of the easy laughs and eye-catching animation that fans of the original enjoyed, although there's a general feeling of diminishing returns. There is. Like I said, it's not as it does not as edgy as the original, but it's more of a kid's movie, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and move to the second movie. Um, so Keith, run me this movie again. Sorry. I, can, I don't know why. I just cannot recall what it's called. No, it's, it's quite all right. It's the alliteration of it. It's Fry Bread, Face, and Me. <laughs> okay, and what's this movie about, Brad? Summer courtesy of IMDb. Two adolescent Navajo cousins from different worlds bond during a summer herding sheep on their grandmother's ranch in Arizona while learning more about their family's past and themselves. That's a good summary, and you know, thankfully, we're really in the golden era of movies and TV made by and starring America's indigenous peoples, and that always makes me smile. The new way started with Reservation Dogs, which lighted for three seasons with its offbeat charm, and continues now with Echo, the new Marvel series that the crew will review on our next TV episode. And of course, The Elephant in the Room, made by an interloper but with care and skill, is Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which just this week arrives on Apple+. Plus. And somewhere in between is the thoroughly charming Fry Bread Face and Me, a semi-autobiographical movie on Netflix from indigenous documentary director Billy Luther. And turning the lens instead this time on his own life and turning it into a fictional tale, he's crafted a slow-burning coming-of-age flick filled with loving nostalgia from an, from an indigenous perspective. Many people can relate to the experience of being shipped off to relatives or to camp for the summer. And in a way, that's what happens to our young hero, Benny, played by Keir Tallman. Except in this case, it means being shipped out to the res to stay with his Navajo grandmother who has refused to ever learn a word of English, a sort of enclave for outcasts from throughout the family. From here, this could devolve into a typical fish-out-of-water movie, but Luther's split constantly rises above that with his personal imprint. Though as Benny slowly finds out, he's been shipped away because his parents are going through a rough patch they don't want him to see. This movie that is hard about Benny learning to love the Navajo, or as they prefer to be called Dine, traditions he has largely ignored in his first 11 or so years on Earth. In this, Grandmother Lorraine, played by Sarah H. Natani, herself a skillful Navajo warrior making her film debut, is the perfect guru for Benny as he slowly learns to embrace his roots. But the relationship at the heart of this is with the titular fry bread face, fry bread face, that is hard to say, his cousin Dawn, played by Charlie Hogan. Though combatants at first, they form a tender, largely unspoken bond in moments that give this movie a lot of its charm, and how fully they are able to be themselves in each other's company. There's a subtle LGBTQ plus thread that runs through this as Benny struggles to live up to the expectations of what a DNA man should be. But thankfully, Luther never beats us over the head with this, instead letting it play out such as one where Benny and Dawn dance together in traditional DNA women's clothing. At its best, Luther's flick is full of knowingly charming moments, like how the only form of outside entertainment they have is a copy of the great 1984 sci-fi romance Starman. The cousins also bond over it as they know it so well they can recite pretty much the entire script. My own complaint with this otherwise thoroughly entertaining flick is the book-ending voiceover narration, which feels tacked on, perhaps out of the fear the wider audience wouldn't be able to grasp the emotional significance of this tale. That's the quibble at best. For a great coming-of-age flick from an indigenous perspective, infused throughout with stunning nostalgia, and the affection Luther clearly has for his family, heartily recommend Fry Bread Face and Me, and I'll give it three stars. Let's wrap tomatoes, Keith. Uh, once again, critics and audience. Ooh, I have no idea on this one, because I, I don't know how many people saw it, although I wish they would. Um, I'll go 75 on the critics, because this is a slow-burning kind of movie, and I'll go 70 for the fans. 
Critics, 97%, 29 wow, reviews. Good. Audience, 84%, 50 plus reviews. So. I should have more faith. It really is a, a pretty great coming of age movie. Oh, and unfortunately, there was no critics or audience uh, response for, for this one. So uh, I guess we're going to go ahead and go along to the next movie. So, Ben? The next movie is my movie. It is Self-Reliance. It stars Jake Johnson and Anna Kendrick. So, Brad, what do you got as far as summary? Summary is always courtesy of IMDb. Given the opportunity to participate in a life-or-death reality game show, one man discovers there's a lot to live for. Okay. <laughs> so this movie wasn't on my radar. You know, we're recording this on Sunday. It was released on Friday on Hulu, January 12th. And I don't think I saw a trailer for it until maybe Wednesday. It's a short movie. It has an indie vibe. It's written and directed by Jake Johnson and starring. I guess in an interview, he said it's a mix of Bottle Rocket and... What was it? And Jacob's Ladder. I don't think it's either of those. I think it's more like a kind of a indie comic version of the game, that David Fincher movie. Long story short, the premise and the concept is basically what Brad said. And so it's just like, do you like Jake Johnson and Anna Kendrick? And if you do, I think you should watch it. I mean, again, that's only a 90-minute movie. It's really centered on them. And not even there's not even as much Anna Kendrick as you would think there would be. Natalie Morales is the other person that you would probably know. And there's some there's a couple cameos in there of people who are actually trying to hunt uh, our guy, Tom, Tom Walcott, in this movie, a.k.a. Jake Johnson. But, you know, it, it's, it's worth the time. I don't think it's going to make my top ten list, but um, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was very enjoyable. Um, the chemistry between Anna Kendrick and Jake Johnson is pretty good. Um, you have a cameo by Andy Sandberg as well, which is in the trailer. I'm not spoiling that. Um, so give it give it a chance. It's it's charming in the same way that like maybe Palm Spring is, but not as like well thought out. And in fact, I'm Mister like runtime cop, but I could even have stand to have maybe gotten another ten minutes to flesh out some of the characters and the relationship between the two. But worth a shot. It's on Hulu streaming. It's all good. Tomatoes. Oh, sorry, I didn't get my grade. Three. <laughs> there you go. I was gonna say. I'm, I'm giving it three out of five. Yes. So we've had straight threes mm-hmm. so far. Oh, that's cool. So. All right, so uh, Rotten Tomatoes, critics and audience, uh, Ben, first time today, what you thinking? I'll caveat the critic score because I, as in my research, I thought I saw a number, so I'm going to go with that, 69%. <laughs> okay. Uh, audience, again, you like Jake Johnson, you like Anna Kendrick, you'll probably enjoy it. Not that serious, indie vibe, 84%. Okay. Critics, 73%, 44 reviews. Okay. Audience, 68%, 100-plus reviews. So you're closer on the audience. So That's some surprising hate. I mean, there's a lot of New Girl fans. People like Jake Johnson. but you know. Well, it's funny that him and Andy Samberg are in this movie because in some ways they kind of drive in the same lane. I mean, I could see Andy Samberg being, uh, like, the roles being reversed in this. And like I said, Andy Samberg only has a cameo. He basically, I mean, he literally plays himself or a fictionalized version of himself, so. Gotcha. So. But check it out, Hulu. Now, Critics Consensus, uh, courtesy of Rotten Tomatoes. Debuting director Jake Johnson acquits himself admirably with Self-Reliance, a unique comedy thriller hybrid that does a good job balancing silly and sincere. Awesome. I'll probably watch it tonight. Yeah. All right, Keith. Well, our num- number four movie this week is The Book of Clarence. So, Brad, what is this all about? All right. Summary, uh, as always, courtesy of IMDb. Struggling to find a better life, Clarence is captivated by the power of of the rising messiah, and soon risk everything to carve a path to divine existence. That's a pretty good summary, because this is a wild movie. You know, I've been looking forward to um, James Samuel's Book of Clarence ever since I first heard the singer-turned-filmmaker was turning his sights from the Wild West to Biblical East. 
and I certainly wasn't disappointed with the results. And now, with the Book of Clarence out this week, he looks east, to many specifically, for an epic that constantly straddles the line between straightforward drama and riotous satire, working as both while also being an ambitious inquiry into the nature of faith versus morality, and all the while being incredibly fun to watch. A lot of the credit for that goes to Lakeith Stanfield, who I'll watch now in anything. Here he plays the titular Clarence, a down-on-his-luck loser who first tries to become Jesus' 13th disciple, then, failing that, hatches his own scheme to become a new messiah. If all that sounds like pure blas blasphemy, the beauty of Samuel's movie is it really is involved. The alluring scenery of the Book of Clarence, filmed with skill in scenic Matera, Italy, as they stand in for Jerusalem, by cinematographer Rob Hardy, gives it the sheen of the grand biblical epics to which it pays tribute while flipping them on their head. While the simpler story here would have had Clarence just convert to Christianity, he remains a non-believer throughout, instead learning to live a moral life without that. And it's this tricky balance that Samuel and Stanfield nail pretty perfectly. Stanfield gives a depth to Clarence that he often conveys through his eyes alone, a character who is always thinking, considering his next move, while also reflecting on his social and moral status. The movie opens with its most visually stunning scene, the chariot race straight out of Ben-Hur with actual horses, which Clarence and his inspiring pal Elijah, played by R.J. Seiler, of course lose to Mary Magdalene, a beguiling town of Taylor on the streets of Jerusalem. The depth this places on Clarence launches all the scheming that comes next. There are moments of farce throughout and magical realism, as among other visual flourishes, Clarence and his friends actually fly when high on the weed he pedals to survive. This can take away from Samuel's greater ambition here, but overall it makes for a heady mix. Samuel's movie works best when it explores the many meanings of faith, especially when it comes to Clarence and his twin brother Thomas, one of Jesus' apostles, of course also played by Stanfield. While Clarence stayed at home to help their mother as his act of faith, Thomas gave his to Jesus and left the family, creating a friction that drives much of the story here. Like with The Heart of They Fall, Samuels has an all-star and deep cast to work with here. David Oyelowo plays a sarcastic, short-tempered John the Baptist, who repeatedly rebukes Clarence's efforts to get baptized without belief in one of the very best scenes. The French actor Omar Sy is perfection as Clarence's loyal warrior sidekick Barnabas, and Marianne Jean-Baptiste provides the most heart-wrenching moments as Clarence's mother Amina. I will say that Samuels' ambitions sometimes get ahead of him, as the one-night Romans here are painted far too broadly in an effort to provide a parallel to the suppression of black people that continues today. One scene in which Barnabas is, is speared in the back repeatedly while running from centurions is stirring, but unfortunately James McAvoy hams it up as a Pontius Pilate giving no depth at all by Samuels. That's the quibble at best, because Clarence's journey overall hit me really hard and thoroughly entertained me. The Book of Clarence is the rare farce that takes itself seriously and works both ways, using clashing questions of belief to create the epic journey that I'm glad I took. For that, I'll give it three and a half stars. So, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, critics and audience, for the last time, Keith, what's your thoughts? I did not look, but I will say that critic Robert Daniels at um, uh, Roger Ebert thoroughly panned this. I respect him, and I understand why. People are all over the place on this. So I will go, with the critics, I'll go 65. Fans, I'll go a little higher, because James Daniels has some buzz. I'll go 75. Well, you nailed the audience, Keith. 75%, 100-plus mm -hmm. reviews. Critics are close. 69%, mm -hmm. 77 reviews. Critics Consensus, courtesy of Rotten Tomatoes, the book of Clarence makes light work on some heavy subject matter with undeniably entertaining, albeit uneven, results. That's very true. Um, how, much, how much you can stomach the farce and versus the pretty serious inquiry of nature of faith tells you how much you'll like this movie. Gotcha. Three threes and a three and a half? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. For January, that's, uh, that's pretty... It's not pretty, bad. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think this time last year, the movie that Keith and I reviewed was House Party, which I enjoyed, but it's not a... <laughs> oh, yeah. doesn't wait a, doesn't rate a three. It's not on this level. Even, I'm sure, Jake Johnson's comedy was probably better than that one. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, so why don't we go ahead and wrap this episode up. So, Keith, you got the plugs. Sure, you can reach us at MovieInTheMealOG at gmail.com, MovieInTheMeal on Twitter, and you can just listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, so for Movies and Meal, I'm Ben. And Keith. Spread. Peace.